What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Anastasia Amoroso is the chief investment strategist at iCapital Network. In this conversation, we talk about calling the bottom of markets, what the price of oil is likely to do from here, the Federal Reserve, interest rates, and how that impacts inflation, along with much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Anastasia, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. They offer clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, underscored by a 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They leverage LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology. LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. If you've never heard of LMAX Digital, it's probably because you are not an institution. They have no retail, only institutions. They feature a central limit order book streaming spot Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, all paired with US dollars, Euro, and Yen. LMAX Digital. They're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. Learn more at lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. Again, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. 8sleep is the single best product that I have purchased over the last three years. It completely changed my life. I'm not joking. Pay attention. The Pod Pro cover, which goes over your mattress by 8sleep, is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can go to 8sleep.com slash pomp to check out the Pod Pro cover and you save $150 at checkout. They currently ship within the United States, Canada, and the UK. Now, I told you, it changed my life. It helps me sleep deeper, helps me sleep longer. I feel much more refreshed and I have better energy. You want to know how I have relentless energy every single day? Because I sleep on an eight sleep. Seriously, go check it out. Eightsleep.com slash pomp today. This episode is brought to you by OKX. OKEX has dropped the E to become OKX. Founded in 2017 with a mission to deliver a cutting edge crypto trading experience, OKX, the world's second largest crypto exchange by trading volume, has since expanded its scope alongside the wider industry, adding features from all corners of crypto. If EX is about exchange, X is about intersections. Cross-chain, cross-functional, cross-platform, an interoperable future that's not siloed into isolated platforms and blockchains. The name change and the new look and feel represent OKX's ongoing move towards decentralized finance. With OKX's decentralized platform and Web3 wallet, MetaX, you have full custody over your crypto. Connect MetaX in your browser or within the OKX app to explore DeFi, NFTs, and play to earning gaming, the world's most powerful crypto exchange. Whether you're just learning about crypto, you're a seasoned DeFi degen, an NFT enthusiast, or a pro trader, you're all invited to a better future. Go check it out today and let me know what you think. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We got a lot of questions about the macro environment. It's probably the number one thing that people uh, keep writing to us, tweeting at us, asking us questions. So uh, we have a very special guest, uh, Anastasia Amorso, is joining us from iCapital. Uh, Anastasia, how are you? 
Good. How are you guys doing? We're doing fantastic. I have a lot of questions for you. So I figure I'm just going to start throwing them out there and you, uh, you do your best to help us figure out what the hell is going on uh, in the market. Let's start first with inflation. Uh, we saw last week 7.9% inflation. Uh, how accurate is that number in your opinion? Well, look, I think it's as accurate as we're going to get, but the, the challenge with it is this number was supposed to be going down now for months. It was actually supposed to peak last month, but as we continue to see the inflation pressures are just continuing to build. And so as a result, anywhere you look across the streets, more and more economists are penciling it in more and more inflation for this year. Now, at the end of this year, the forecast was supposed to subside for inflation to three, maybe three and a half percent. I looked at it just yesterday, and now the forecast for inflation is still calling for it to be at 5% by the end of the year. So that's a challenge. And, you know, when I look, Anthony, at an inflation number from last week, it's just everywhere. You got 7.9% headline inflation. You got 7.9% food inflation. You still got used car prices that are running at 41% higher than they were the year before that. There's energy, there's shelter, and so on and so forth. So it's a real problem is that it's just we can't point to one factor that's driving this. It's a multitude of things. So um, a lot to unpack there, and that's why it's such a challenge for the Fed and frankly, it has to be a challenge for the, the governments as well. The Fed can't just tackle this alone. Yeah, I think it's a great point. One of the themes that we've talked about a lot over the last you know, six, eight months is just uh, if you don't have good data, you can't make good decisions, right? Just inherently, if you're looking at bad data or flawed data, you're going to uh, lead to bad decision making. Uh, and you mentioned shelter. And I think that's probably one of like the biggest questions that uh, people have had as we've looked at the data, which is shelter is showing, you know, four or 5% increase in price over the last 12 months. But Rent prices in America are up, you know, 18, 20%. Home prices are up 18, 20%. And so when we start to think of that as just one of many, many examples across uh, kind of the makeup of the CPI, it makes up 33% of the basket, give or take. And so, like, how do you think about the methodology that goes into calculating the number? And are people misplaced in their concerns around how that is being calculated? Or do you think actually maybe we should be looking at that, you know, especially in an environment where there's such high inflation and everyone's trying to figure out what the actual numbers are? Well, I think you bring up a really good point, and that is that your CPI basket, my CPI basket, and somebody else's CPI basket are probably not apples to apples. They're, in fact, quite different. And so the challenge right now, you brought up shelter, and you know I brought up food, and you've got energy, transportation costs, and you've got electricity costs. When I look at those four things right there, they account for 94% of spending of the low-income consumer. And so that's a real challenge. So if you're having to pay that much more for shelter uh, and food and everything else, that crowds out some of the other spending. So while, for example, somebody in the top, you know, one, two or whatever percent uh, of their spending bracket, they're not feeling the, the pinch from shelter inflation. Many, many consumers are. And so, you know, I, I take your point that the Fed looks at this one CPI indicator and tries to make a decision based on that. But I do think they also look at a variety of different measures. I think there's 19 different inflation indicators that they look at, and they must be looking at the segments because inflation certainly does not hit everybody to the same degree, the same proportion. The concern it is increasingly hitting more and more consumers. Take a look, for example, at the Consumer Confidence Index, and that is at the lowest it's been in 10 years, which is kind of surprising, right? Because here we are venturing out of COVID and things are supposed to be uh, getting better, but consumer confidence is at the, that 10% 10 year low. The reason is 
inflation is 7.9%, wages are not. Wages are growing at maybe 5 or 6%. So in real terms, more and more consumers, unfortunately, are seeing uh, their earnings power go down. Yeah, we, we obviously know that whether you look at official or unofficial inflation numbers, look at wage growth, like all these things, like there's a lot, right? And again, maybe 50% of Americans that are being pushed into worse and worse financial situation. Uh, and so that then begs the question of like, what can the Federal Reserve actually do, right? Historically, they've basically had these two tools, which is the uh, manipulation of interest rates and then the uh, expansion or contraction of the money supply. Uh, how do you think about what they can do in these situations? Uh, and then also like, what do you think they're going to do as we look forward? Yeah, well, the first thing they can do and they should do is they should get away from being behind the curve to actually being proactive about this. And I'll tell you, you know, in their defense, right? I think the Fed probably would have thought about hiking rates back in the summer of last year, and maybe then again, you know, in the fall of last year. But the challenge is you had the Delta variant and, you know, that wreaked havoc with the supply chains. Then you had the Omicron variant and they had to pause for that as well. So finally, it seems like they have an opening for them to finally to catch up. If you think about what's happened is you still have rates that are pegged at zero, inflation at 7.9%, but the economy had essentially a two months recession. It was a very deep recession back in 2020, but we're well past that. So this is why I say that's why the Fed needs to get back from being behind the curve, because if you look at a 30, 40 year chart of monetary policy, where we are today and inflation, there has never been such a big divergence. So they know this, and this is why in the face of tighter uh, financial conditions globally and the, the war, the tragic war in Russia and Ukraine, they're still saying they're going to hike rates uh, this week, at uh, the meeting this week. I think they're probably going to pencil in six rate hikes for the rest of the year as well. The reason why they probably have the latitude to do that is because that's what the markets expect. That's what's currently priced into the market. So that wouldn't be too shocking. And that would get them, I think, um, a good step forward in order to not be behind the curve. So if they do that, we're going to be looking at the Fed funds rate of 1.8%, give or take, by the end of the year. And we'll likely get to two and a quarter uh, next year. So that's what they're going to do. Um, does it fight inflation? Does it stop inflation in its tracks? Uh, I don't think that does by itself. What I, by what I suspect happens over the course of the next few months to a year is monetary policy is going to get more restrictive. And at the same time, commodity prices are still likely to stay elevated. And that negative um, you know, wage pressure is going to start to build. So I do think we're going to see some demand destruction, unfortunately, uh, come in sectors of housing, for example, and some of the other cyclical parts of the economy. So the Fed is going to tighten, demand is going to slow down a little bit, and that's why more and more people now are worried about if a growth slowdown and or a recession is on the horizon. So one of the big things that people keep asking is, uh, do we have to pick our poison? Is this a have inflation uh, or raise rates to address inflation and get a recession? Like, is that the framework or the trade-off decision? Uh, or do you evaluate it some other way? Could we have a recession and inflation at the same time? Uh, could we actually not have a recession and no inflation? Like, how do you evaluate what the impact of uh, a, a hiking of rates actually ends up being? Yeah, I think the unfortunate part is in the next few months, we're going to be in this challenging time period where the Fed is going to be hiking interest rates into a slowdown. 
And I'm not saying that a recession is imminent and you know, we're going to plunge right into it. But if you look at historically what the Fed, when the Fed typically raised interest rates is when the economy was strong and potentially getting stronger. But because they haven't done it this time around, they're now going to be hiking into a global growth slowdown. So we look at a variety of different growth indicators. Uh, but for example, you look at the manufacturing indices and the manufacturing activity has already peaked late last year and is slowing down. And that's a phenomenon globally. You've got the housing market that's already slowing down as well. And that's what the Fed is hiking into. So, you know, it, it, again, it's not that we go from, you know, low unemployment rate to five or six percent over, overnight. And it's not that we have negative uh, sequential GDP growth, but it's just that growth sequentially is going to be slower as the Fed hikes rates. And hopefully eventually they get inflation under control, perhaps by the end of the year. So what that means, however, is for the markets, this is not a positive picture because if the economy slows and the cost of capital goes up, then equity markets have to adjust for that two ways. First of all, if you look at the earnings for the S&P 500, right now consensus is penciling in 230 bucks for S&P 500 earnings for the next 12 months. Well, does that 230 hold if the economy starts to slow down? So my suspicion is that it doesn't, and we're going to start to see some of those downgrades. So just over the weekend, we had Goldman and several others that actually did downgrade their earnings estimates. And so when I look at the time series of earnings estimates over time, we have are now out of a period where there are more positive upgrades versus downgrades. We're now getting into that negative territory. So that historically does not bode well for markets, or at least in terms of generating significant positive performance. And then you got the Fed that is hiking rates, meaning the cost of capital is rising and the multiple, therefore, on the S&P 500 may also need to adjust. So it's about 18 and a half times today. Does it go back to 17, like it was 17 and a half, like it was before the pandemic? That's possible. So unless you have a significant resolution, let's say in Russia and Ukraine, and unless you have a significant growth catalyst from somewhere else, I just think the returns for the markets are going to be um, subdued, if not negative. So when we look at something like, let's take the NASDAQ, right, which is down, I don't know, 15 to 30% right now, depending on the day, uh, from the high back in November of 2021, how much further can it fall? Like, are, are we potentially able to see something that would be seen as like the risk assets? Could they fall another 30, 50%? Like what, what is the thought process around risk assets specifically, given that we've got uh, kind of a slowdown underway, we've got inflation out of hand, the Fed has to raise interest rates in order to address some of this stuff. It's usually much later in the kind of problem that they would like to uh, raise those interest rates. And so the risk assets already kind of took a beating at just them talking about raising the rates. Once they start to do it, could it get cut in half again? Or like, how do you think about this? Yeah, uh, that's the question. And after, I think, uh, making a pretty bearish case for risk assets here, I want to maybe talk a little bit in a positive light about this. So we have priced in a lot of those things. I, I would say at least the first degree of them. I think we've priced in higher commodity prices. Uh, we have not priced in the second round effects. But you're right. The NASDAQ is down about 15%. The S&P is down 12 or so. And so I would say we're about 40% of the way to pricing in a recession event. So the average correction, the average bear market in stocks in the S&P, at least, it's about 24%. That, that's the median, I should say. That's the median drawdown. So we're down about 12%. So again, you know, almost 50% of the way there. 
Um, that's frankly what I would like to see happen. I would like to see a little bit more of a correction here, perhaps not to price in the full recession probability, not to be down, you know, 25 or 30 percent. But I want just a little bit more fear to be priced into the markets because everybody's talking about this recession outcome and the red flags that are there, but people are kind of not penciling that in. They're not really materially raising those probabilities. But once they do, and once we can say that a great deal of recession risk is in the price, that's when I think the market becomes a screaming buying opportunity because we've priced in the worst um, and we just haven't yet. So, you know, from here, I could see potentially another pullback of 10 percent if some of these recessionary dynamics truly do develop. Um, and it's not to say that you wait on the sidelines and you just wait for this pullback. I would just say it's not an all in or nothing approach. I think there's things that you can do in the meantime. There are things that you can buy on a pullback. Um, but again, for a broad market to be a screaming buy, I, I think higher recession probabilities and perhaps another uh, 7 to 10% would be warranted. How do you decide, uh, okay, now's the screaming buy? Like, is there a, uh, a metric that you look at? Is there a data point? Do you just go on Twitter and everyone thinks the world's ending? So like, that feels like a good time to buy. Like, how do you evaluate uh, kind of, you know, as close to you can as the market bottom or, or kind of, okay, now's the time to get aggressive? Well, that's funny you mentioned that because it is one of the you know pretty good data points is what is the sentiment out there and you know how bearish exactly is it? Is everyone a bear yet? And not only is it that, but is everybody positioned like a bear? So over the years, I've kind of developed this you know easy formula, and I, I say easy, of course, nothing is nothing is easy, but you know my formula is valuation plus positioning plus a catalyst, and it works both ways on the bullish side and the bearish side. And so if we get to a point where valuations are back to, you know, pre-COVID levels, as I mentioned, they aren't there yet. They're at 18 and a half. They could get to perhaps 17. If we get to the valuations that are increasingly pricing in recession, that, that, that's one thing. Um, the second thing is positioning. As I mentioned, the sentiment actually feels pretty bearish out there. The percentage of uh, bears, I think recently was about 50, 55%, and that was back to 2013 level. So we've, uh, you know, people have been talking pretty bearish, but when we look at the fund flows, you actually still see a lot of money going into the equity market, and especially prior to this going into the global equity market. So I would love to see that turn, and I would love to see that for the capitulation to say that positioning has been clear. Now, there's many indicators of positioning to watch. There's the retail investors, there's the fund flows, there's institutional investors, and then there's also the hedge funds. So that's a little bit the silver lining here and some good news is that we have seen a major de-risking, degrossing from the hedge fund community. So their leverage ratios are now back down to November of 2020 levels. So I think a lot of the selling pressure that has been sweeping through the markets has been because of that. So that's why I might tell you if we have a positive resolution in Russia and Ukraine, I could see the stock markets bounce just because of how deleveraged the hedge funds have gotten. But to see full capitulation and to say, this is it, this is the moment, I would need to see more investors that have been still allocating to equities. I would need to see those pull back. And the last thing is the catalyst. You know, this is a tough part right now. I will say in April, in March of 2020, it was kind of easy in a way to, to call for a market turnaround because you've priced in the worst case scenario and you've got the Fed 
and the central and the federal government that was adding an extreme and unprecedented amount of accommodation. So that was a major catalyst for a turnaround at that point. Right now, that is what we're waiting for. We need to see a positive catalyst before we can declare an all clear. Now, that positive catalyst could be progress in Russia and Ukraine. It could be, this would probably be the most important one, could be uh, the peaking of supply chain bottlenecks and the peaking of inflation, which we have not yet seen. Or it could be some other growth catalyst. Let's say China did away with a zero COVID policy. Again, that's not on the horizon currently, but I would need to see that positive catalyst to say with conviction that we've priced the worst case scenario in, but now we have uh, room to the upside. So for now, I would say selectivity and patience is what investors should be doing. You mentioned earlier commodity prices, and I think that uh, one of the surprising things uh, in real time, but in hindsight makes sense, is the explosion in oil, wheat, nickel, uh, et cetera. We, we've been joking that they're essentially trading kind of like shit coins, right, where they just are kind of going at normal growth levels, and then all of a sudden you just see uh, a material move upwards, and, and you kind of scratch your head like, why did that happen? Now, there was the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and obviously natural gas, oil, wheat, a number of these commodities, uh, these countries or that region are heavy producers of them. But oil has been fairly volatile even before that. I mean, it was a negative uh, futures contract price back uh, in May, I think, of 2020. Uh, and that then was all, a screaming buy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that was a pretty simple one, it seemed like. Uh, but then you start to unpack why and the whole idea of custody and, and storage, and, and you begin to understand it. But now we turn around and oil's hitting, you know, 120, 130, $140 price points. Uh, and so to see that level of volatility in a 24 month period, I think is surprising to people. How do you think about commodities moving forward and, and how much of it is uh, being in tune with geopolitics or, or some of these kind of more event driven stuff versus th there's a, a relationship to monetary and fiscal policy that people should be paying attention to? Yeah. So here's the good and the bad news about commodities right now is the good news is I do think that we've priced in a lot of worst case scenarios from the Russia-Ukraine situation. And so here's how we look at it. We looked at the current spot of some of these commodities that you mentioned, nickel and wheat and, uh, and copper and so forth and oil. And we looked at what the street is saying the price target would be if we had a worst case scenario. For example, if we didn't buy all of 5 million barrels of oil from Russia, or if all of the wheat production from Russia and Ukraine got completely disrupted, what would happen to the prices of those commodities? And obviously they would spike, but the way that the spot prices already spiked accounted for a large degree of that worst case scenario. Uh, last week, I think wheat was trading at 1350 uh, per bushel. The worst case scenario was about 1000 or 1100. So we've priced that in and then some. Uh, nickel, even if we had a complete disruption, $800,000 is what the price should have been. And we've essentially priced in that before it halted trading. So that's the good news that we've priced in a lot of that worst case scenario. And if we do see a re some sort of resolution in Russia and Ukraine, you could see a pretty significant give back in those commodity prices. You can see inflation expectations potentially come down. Maybe that bodes well for the Fed and so on and so forth. So, so, so that's the good news. The challenging news is that the world is actually short of commodities. 
And I'm going to comment specifically on oil. If you look at oil inventories that are well below their five-year averages, and if you look at the oil balances, we're going to get back to consuming 100 million barrels a day uh, in the next few months as the economy rebounds. And yet we're not pumping in the full 100 million barrels a day. We're pumping less than that. And if you take Russia out of the equation, then it's going to be even less than that as well. So Russia or not, the oil markets are incredibly tight as they are. And so we would still expect 90 to $100 barrel of crude oil to persist. And again, that herein lies the challenge is it may not be a problem for some of the consumers, but it is a problem for, for a good many of them. So um, yes, we might see some give back in commodity prices, but Bloomberg Commodity Index is still up 26%. And again, I just don't see um, commodity prices derating meaningfully from here. Uh, I've got my two brothers here with me. Uh, what questions do you guys have? Hey, Anastasia, I'll go first. Uh, my question would be around what's happening in Ukraine. Obviously, this is somewhat of a loaded question with uh, kind of the uncertainty that's involved in it. But Russia has uh, been sanctioned. They've essentially been cut off from the financial world. As, as for individual investors uh, and retail investors, like how should they be thinking about this? How should they be thinking about trades? How should they be thinking about kind of the duration of what we'll see? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I was doing this presentation in Uruguay of all places a, co a couple of weeks ago. And I, you know, I, I was on stage and I was talking about how this is going to be a series of incremental escalations by Putin and a series of incremental escalations in return from, from sanctions in, in the U.S. Clearly, I was terribly wrong about that. And this is not incremental, but this is an uh, all out inv invasion and all out set of sanctions. So again, there's uh, there's a good and bad about um, everything. So the good news is that um, you know Russia is going to be financially cut off from the West for the foreseeable future. However, that shouldn't in itself change the trajectory of the U.S. economy or uh, or European economy. We looked at, for example, at the financial linkages between Russia and the US, and they're really minimal as percentage of GDP. And we did the same for all the European economies as well. It's for most of them, it's less than 1% of GDP that is tied to Russia. So even if every single corporate in Russia and every single bank and the sovereign government, let's say worst case scenario, defaulted on their debt obligations due to the West, I, was, I would venture a guess that the economies would still be fine, even with some pain in the, in the banking sector. So, um, so that's, you know, that's kind of the first uh, impact to consider. The second one, of course, is the commodity prices, but I, I think we've, uh, we've talked through that. Um, the third thing I will say is what's happening today in Russia and Ukraine versus U.S. and the West, I think fundamentally changes certain policies that we're going to pursue. For example, I don't think ever, never, ever again will the West want to rely uh, on Russia or maybe even any other economy on their commodity flows. So Germany, you, you know, and others may not reduce their current uh, commodity purchases from Russia, but you bet they're going to pivot and pivot pretty significantly in terms of their future supply. And so speaking of an investment angle here, I think U.S. is going to be a pretty significant beneficiary of that. In, instead of buying natural gas from Russia, Europe is likely to pivot to buy natural gas, liquefied natural gas, LNG, from the United States. 
And if you look at some of the terminal LNG terminals that are being built, um, you know, down in Texas, we will see significant expansion of their capacity in the next few years to come. And so I think that's going to be a really, really key trade relationship change that whether Russia pulls away from Ukraine or not, that's going to happen as it is. Um, the other one I would give you, well, maybe a couple of others, um, obviously energy independence. And yes, we need to you know, accomplish the ESG. Um, well, we need to ensure energy independence. Uh, so we might prioritize our domestic energy production, but also in the U.S., I think there's going to be a more significant push towards uh, clean energy as well. So you've seen clean energy, for example, do really, um, I mean, hold up really well and rally significantly on certain days because clearly a part of the energy independence mix has to be uh, securing clean energy capacity as well. And then the last one I'll say is kind of a take, you know, takeaway from this is coming back to your space, uh, which is uh, crypto and Bitcoin. And, you know, last year was a breakout year for crypto in terms of performance, you know, before some of the pullback and consolidation. But I might argue that this year might be a breakout year for crypto in terms of validating some of the use cases. And what's happening in Russia today is similar, if not worse, than what happened in 1997 when you had a default, a devaluation, a ruble collapse. Today, the ruble is devalued, it's down 50%. Um, you couldn't get money out of the ATMs, those are the reports. You couldn't get your hands on the foreign currency. There's potential capital controls that are, you know, could be widespread as well. So what do you do when you can't reliably transfer your wealth, your assets, and, and when you can't access them in the centralized financial system? So obviously, crypto, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency solutions is part of the answer to that. And I think the, this Ukraine and Russia conflict is going to remind a lot of people that when you can't rely on a central government, a central authority or central financial institution to give you access to your money and be able to move that money, it is very important to have an alternative. And you know, in a way, in the U.S., you know, we worry about Fed printing too much money. We worry about QE. But most people in the U.S. have never actually experienced that, not being able to take money out of the bank and, you know, transfer money elsewhere. But a lot of the people in emerging market economies have experienced that and have lived through it. And so that's why I think the world, especially the emerging market world, will probably, as a result of this, embracing uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies a lot more than before. Um that was a long-winded answer to a question, but there's clearly a lot of investment implications from this. No, that was fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> John, John, what do you got? And Stacey, yeah, thank you for coming on. You talk a little bit about the U.S.'s and the U.S. economy's trajectory coming in the, in the future months. What do you think is going on with the Fed right now and how they're talking about a, a rate hike versus where the economy sits currently? Yeah, I mean, the Fed, as I, as I wrote in one of my uh, recent posts, is between a rock and a hard place. Um, there is no debate that they have to catch up uh, from where they have been. Uh, I think the, the, the you know, Biden administration wants them to, uh, the consumers want them to, but they also have to find this very careful and cautious path. Obviously, they couldn't hike rates 50 basis points given what's happening in Russia and Ukraine with a commodity index, but they still have to move forward. So they're gonna have to navigate this uh, very, very uh, carefully. The thing that concerns me 
I think concerns a lot of market participants out there is U.S. financial conditions have tightened. Equity markets have deteriorated. Liquidity has deteriorated. Credit spreads have started to widen out. That is typically not the environment the hike rates into. And that's just in the U.S. If I look at this global financial conditions indicator uh, that we track, it is surge to the levels last seen in 2015 amidst the you know the global commodity meltdown at, at that point so that's going to be a very challenging path for the fed frankly to navigate and i would say the market's like certainty the market wants a clear path if it's 25 basis points every single meeting tell us that unfortunately i don't think fed chair powell is going to be able to pre-commit to any sort of frequency cadence given the current situation so you know for for all of us in the markets it means that every fed meeting is live and we're going to be talking about this for you know the better part of this year anastasia when you think about bitcoin and cryptocurrencies you guys obviously have a ton of different customers and clients that you uh, that you work with um what are they talking about here are they interested in the investment case uh we talked a little bit about kind of censorship or seizure resistance uh, for these technologies, but what about the investment case and, and what's the demand look like there? Yeah, so there's a lot of interest uh, in the crypto space from from a variety of, of clients. And I would say um, more and more of them are understanding some of the use cases, but more and more of them are trying to figure out where exactly to position in the crypto space. Because as you know, there's 4,000 different coins out there, if not more, probably more by, by, by the day. And there's also a ton of money, relatively speaking, that has gone into funding various blockchain cryptocurrency related solutions. So our clients in, are really trying to understand where some of the better places to allocate. And obviously that's part of, part of our job. So I would say, um, first, there's a huge demand for education and understanding uh, all the various cryptocurrencies and their use cases, what's real, what's not, what's a valid protocol, what's yet to be proven, um, so that there's a lot of interest in understanding that. And the second one, I would say, is understanding the whole ecosystem. Uh, clearly, Bitcoin is the predominant uh, currency in the space, but you look at the VC capital, for example, and the VC funding for blockchain-based uh, companies, I think last year it was $26 billion of VC inflows into that. So that's a ton of money, relatively speaking, to the last five years. In fact, that's probably more money than the cumulative five years uh, received in uh, blockchain funding. So what's being built? What are the solutions? Is it some of the automated market makers? What are some of the other decentralized apps that are built, being built on that? What's what's all this Web 3.0 uh, you know, communication? What's, what smart contracts are being built? So I would say our clients, first and foremost, are interested in understanding the entirety of the crypto ecosystem and identifying some of the best solutions, be it cryptocurrencies themselves, uh, or uh, be it some of the some of the applications. And Anthony, the, the last thing I'll say on this on the subject is that at iCapital, we're we also see a well, obviously see a ton of merit uh, in decentralized ledger solutions. And as you will know, it doesn't just apply to one industry vertical or one industry applications, but there's so much that you can do uh, across the financial services and more. So at iCapital, for example, we're leading uh, a consortium, we're leading uh, several other several other uh, industry participants in building out a decentralized ledger solution to improve how clients access alternatives alternative investments, how they access it, how they keep up with it, um, how, do, how do they service it. So um, 
So again, whether it's cryptocurrencies themselves or these applications, that's where we're trying to help our clients navigate. Awesome. Uh, one of the questions that uh, I think everyone has is like, you have such a wealth of knowledge across these various uh, uh, kind of verticals of the economy, of investment assets, uh, and also spend a lot of time thinking tactically as to what people can do. What should people be doing right now? Like, what are the tactical yeah. things that they can do in their portfolio? Uh, obviously not investment advice, but like, wh what can they do right now to either protect themselves or to uh, benefit given the environment that we're in? Yeah, like I said, it's not an all or nothing approach, right? Even though I said the market is not a screaming buy per se yet in my view, there are things that you can do. So um, I am always going to like the technology sector. And yes, I get it that it's challenged given where the Fed is headed. But I think when we merge on the other side of it, which is going to be slower cyclical growth from cyclical parts of the economy, is going to be back to what is the secular growth and the mega trends that are sweeping the world. So it's going to be back to the software, most likely, that is uh, facilitating digital transformation, which is cloud, which is artificial intelligence, which is more. It's going to be back to cybersecurity spending, which actually has to rise given the new cybersecurity threats that we face. It's probably going to be back to semiconductors where you need more semiconductor content in an electric vehicle versus a, a traditional car, I think to the tune of five times more, uh, more semiconductor content in a smartphone, which is 5G than not. So I think it's going to be back to those types of ideas. And, you know, frankly, I've liked buying these things on a pullback, but it hasn't worked yet because we have not seen that market bottom. However, I don't I don't think we should not. I think we can nibble on some of those ideas, but maybe do that by also writing some covered calls on it. So one of the tactical ideas that I like is if you look at the volatility, the VIX index is at 30. And if you look at a call option and writing a call option that's five or 10 percent out of the money and maybe you do it for three months, the volatility on that is going to be in the 95th or 90th percentile over the last five years meaning the volatility is rich relative to 90% of observations in the last five years. So that means the premium you collect for selling that option is actually really rich and nice relative to history. So maybe your stock goes down another you know, 10, 15%, but if you can collect a five or maybe even more percent premium, that helps protect some of the downside. Or if the stock goes up and you get to that strike price, you get to add that premium on top of it. So this is a very actionable way to meet a position in this environment where you still want to nibble a little bit, but give yourself a little bit of that downside cushion by writing that call option. Um, dividend paying stocks. That was not the place where people have looked. I think that's where we have to look today. And I'll broadly group this category as anything that gives you an income. You know, if you were in cash, Maybe that's better than maybe that's been better than the stock market, but inflation is 7.9%. You know, to me, cash is not an option except for maybe risk risk manage. So investing that in dividend paying stocks, investing that in real estate, uh, Anthony, you mentioned shelter inflation and, um, you know, apartment, um, you know, real estate inflation is rising. Well, why not invest in that? Why not invest in some of those multifamily apartments and get, you know, four or 5% income for it? Um, private credit, it's been a pretty tough year for fixed income markets. Uh, anything but leverage loans has been down, but private credit, um, actually most of that is floating rate securities. So 85% of that is floating rate securities. So if the Fed hikes rates, uh, that should be supportive for that sector as well. So those are the two broad things of ideas, I would say. 
buy a little bit today, nibble a little bit, write a cover call option on top of it, and then make sure that you have a yield bucket in the portfolio so that inflation doesn't just completely erode your cash. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's fantastic. And it feels like uh, as more and more people understand the nuances of the financial system, uh, it becomes less about how much money can I make? And in these environments, how much money can I prevent myself from losing? It tends to be a pretty good strategy uh, just as much. Um, before I let you go, uh, I ask everyone the same question. Uh, one of our sponsors is Eight Sleep. And they've got this thermoregulated uh, mattress that allows it to be super hot, super cold. Uh, I love it because I make it ice cold, freezing cold, and used to sleep like six hours now, uh, sleep at least eight and feel way better. What Do you have like a sleep routine or any sort of routine either at night or in the morning in terms of uh, preparing for the day or, or kind of unwinding after a, a day? Um, I wish I slept eight hours a day. <laughs> I think all of us aspire to that. That's probably not the case. It's essential. Um, Come on. We got to get you to eight hours. <laughs> I think I sent you a message this morning at 5.45 or something like that. So uh, one of my routines for the day is I do like to be up early and I like to be up where most of the people are not. And that gives me prep for the day. That gives me the clarity, the peace of mind, um, you know, to knock out some of the things that I, that I want to do. If I'm really ambitious, I might fit in a workout before six o'clock. When you wake up, what do you check first? That's actually like a great way to understand like what you think is important. Is there a website? Is there a specific, uh, price of an asset, uh, uh, specific chart? Like, what do you look at first? Uh, it actually is Twitter. Uh, it, it didn't used to be the case, but, uh, Twitter is the first app that I check and I usually wake up to a number of Twitter, uh, notifications and the new slow that breaks overnight. So that is the best place. And, uh, that's how I start my day. Got it. And, and you're looking for news specifically there. Uh, yes. Like, uh, like what's got, what's happened in the last, uh, four hours that I've slept rather than eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Four hours. Um, yeah, it, it's incredibly helpful and, uh, you know, can give you a very quick pulse of the sentiment and the news flow that's going to be important for the day. And as you know, it's a 24 seven market. It never sleeps. And, um, I find that that's one of the better applications to, uh, uh, to catch you up on some of the key developments. Yeah, I uh, I tend to do the same thing. Although I read that it's not good for you to do that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if like the first thing you do is check, but uh, but I do the exact same thing. Uh, where can we find uh, find or send people to find you on the internet, uh, or where can they find more about iCapital? Uh, so obviously, I am on Twitter, uh, Anastasia Amoroso underscore one, not any others, just this one, Amoroso underscore one. Uh, and I do uh, publish a lot of the commentary, some of the topics that we discussed today, which you could find at icapitalnetwork.com, uh, uh, insights and research. And you can find us covering a lot of the topics that we discussed, whether it's in public markets, privates, or some of the tactical trade ideas as well. Awesome. And for anyone who uh, who's watching or listening, I just dropped uh, her Twitter account into the chat. So make sure you go and, uh, and follow her there. The best way to get rid of the scam, we got to get you verified so that then we can get rid of all the scammers who are probably asking people for uh, for Dogecoin. John gets those all the time. Right, John? Yep. If I if you get a DM from me asking some crypto question or asking, you know, to send me crypto, that is not me. <laughs> Please block them. And uh, yes, that is definitely you're, you're not. You're not saying send one Bitcoin, I'll send you two back. I, we thought that was you. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be saying that to you. That's awesome. the first tip off. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Anastasia. This was fantastic. We really enjoyed it. I learned a ton and I think a lot of people got uh, got value out of this. So we'll definitely have to, uh, to bring you back and, and talk about this as uh, 
kind of the economy continues to do its thing and uh, hopefully everyone stays kind of alert and educated as to as to what's happening. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Bye. bye. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.